0: section eighteen of little journeys to the homes of the great volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by k hand little journeys to the homes of the great volume one by elbert hubbard section eighteen victor hugo part one man is neither master of his life nor of his fate he can but offer to his fellow-men his efforts to diminish human suffering he can but offer to god his indomitable faith in the growth of liberty victor hugo the father of victor hugo was a general in the army of napoleon his mother a woman of rare grace and brave good sense victor was the third of three sons six weeks before the birth of her youngest boy the mother wrote to a very dear friend of her husband this letter to general victor lahore citizen general soon to become the mother of a third child it would be very agreeable to me if you would act as its godfather its name shall be yours one which you have not belied and one which you have so well honored victor or victorine Your consent will be a testimonial of your friendship for us. Please accept, Citizen General, the assurance of our sincere attachment. Femme Hugo Victorine was expected. Victor came. General Lahore acted as sponsor for the infant. A soldier's family lives here or there, everywhere or anywhere. In 1808, General Hugo was with Joseph Bonaparte in Spain victor was then six years old his mother had taken as a residence a quaint house in the impasse of the fayantine paris it was one of those peculiar old places occasionally seen in france the environs of london have a few america none of which i know this house roomy comfortable and antiquated was surrounded with trees and a tangle of shrubbery vines and flowers above it all was a high stone wall and in front a picket-iron gate it was a mosaic a sample of the sixteenth century inlaid in this solitary as the woods quiet as a convent sacred as a forest a place for dreams and reverie and rest at the back of the house was a dilapidated little chapel here an aged priest counted his beads said daily mass and endeavored to keep moth rust and ruin from the house of prayer this priest was a scholar a man of learning he taught the children of madame hugo another man lived in this chapel he never went outside the gate and used to take exercise at night he had a cot bed in the shelter of the altar beneath his pillow were a pair of pistols and a copy of tacitus this man lived there summer and winter although there was no warmth save the scanty sunshine that stole in through the shattered windows he too taught the children and gave them little lectures on history he loved the youngest boy and would carry him on his shoulder and tell him stories of deeds of valor one day a file of soldiers came they took this man and manacled him the mother sought to keep her children inside the house so that they should not witness the scene but she did not succeed the boys fought their mother and the servants in a mad frenzy trying to rescue the old man the soldiers formed in columns of four and marched their prisoner away not long after madame hugo was passing the church of saint jacques de haupas her youngest boy's hand was in hers she saw a large placard posted in front of the church she paused and pointing to it said victor read that the boy read it was a notice that general Lahore had been shot that day on the plains of grenville by order of a court-martial general lahore was a gentleman of brittany he was a republican and five years before had grievously offended the emperor a charge of conspiracy being proved against him a price was placed upon his head and he found a temporary refuge with the mother of his godson that tragic incident of the arrest and the placard announcing general lahore's death burned deep into the soul of the manling, and who shall say to what extent it colored his future life when napoleon met his downfall it was also a waterloo for general hugo his property was confiscated and penury took the place of plenty when victor was nineteen his mother having died the family life was broken up in les miserables the early struggles of marius are described and this the author has told us may be considered autobiography He has related how the young man lived in a garret, how he would sweep this barren room, how he would buy a penny worth of cheese, waiting until dusk to get a loaf of bread, and slink home as furtively as if he had stolen it. How, carrying his book under his arm, he would enter the butcher's shop, and after being elbowed by jeering servants till he felt the cold sweat standing out on his forehead, he would take off his hat to the astonished butcher and ask for a single mutton-chop. This he would carry to his garret, and cooking it himself, it would be made to last for three days. In this way, he managed to live on less than two hundred dollars a year, derived from the proceeds of poems, pamphlets, and essays. At this time, he was already an Academy laureate, having received honorable mention for a poem submitted in a competition. In his twentieth year, fortune came to him in triple form. He brought out a book of poems that netted him seven hundred francs, soon after the publication of this book louis the eighteenth who knew the value of having friends who were ready writers bestowed on him a pension of one thousand francs a year then these two pieces of good fortune made possible a third his marriage early marriages are like late ones they may be wise and they may be not victor hugo's marriage with adele fauchet was a most happy event a man with a mind as independent as victor hugo's is sure to make enemies The classics were positive that he was defiling the well of classic French and they sought to write him down. But by writing a man up, you cannot write him down. The only thing that can smother a literary aspirant is silence. Victor Hugo coined the word when he could not find it, transposed phrases, inverted sentences, and never called a spade an agricultural implement not content with this he put the spade on exhibition and this often at unnecessary times and occasionally prefaced the word with an adjective had he been let alone he would not have done this the censors told him he must not use the name of deity nor should he refer so often to kings at once he doubled his topsies and put on his stage three uncle toms when one might have answered like shakespeare he used idioms and slang with profusion anything to express the idea will this convey the thought if so it was written down and once written beelzebub and all his hosts could not make him change it but in the interest of truth let me note one exception i do not like that word said mademoiselle mars to victor hugo at a rehearsal of hernani can i not change it i wrote it so and it must stand was the answer mademoiselle marge used another expression instead of the author's and he promptly asked her to resign her part she wept and upon agreeing to adhere to the text was reinstated in favour rehearsal after rehearsal occurred and the words were repeated as written the night of the performance came superb was the stage setting splendid the audience the play went forward amid loud applause the scene was reached where came the objectionable word did mademoiselle marge use it of course not she used the words she chose she was a woman fifty-three times she played the part and not once did she use the author's pet phrase and he was wise enough not to note the fact the moral of this is that not even a strong man can cope with a small woman who weeps at the right time the censorship forbade the placing of marion delorme on stage until a certain historical episode in it had been changed would the author be so kind as to change it not he then it shall not be played, said M. de Martina. The author hastened to interview the minister in person. He got a North Pole reception. In fact, M. de Martina said that it was his busy day, and that playwriting was foolish business anyway. But if a man were bound to write, he should write to amuse, not to instruct. And young Hugo was bowed out. When he found himself well outside the door, he was furious. He would see the king himself, and he did see the king his majesty was gracious and very patient he listened to the young author's plea talked book lore recited poetry showed that he knew hugo's verses asked after the author's wife then the baby and said that the play could not go on hugo turned to go charles x called him back and said that he was glad that the author had called in fact he was about to send for him his pension thereafter should be six thousand francs a year victor hugo declined to receive it of course the papers were full of the subject all cafetum took sides paris had a topic for gesticulation and paris improved the opportunity conservatism having stopped this play there was only one thing to do write another for a play of victor hugo's must be put upon the stage all his friends said so his honour was at stake in three weeks another play was ready the censors read it and gave their report They said that Hernani was whimsical in conception, defective in execution, a tissue of extravagances, generally trivial, and often coarse. But they advised that it be put upon the stage, just to show the public, to what extent of folly an author could go. In order to preserve the dignity of their office, they drew up a list of six places where the text should be changed. Both sides were afraid, so each was willing to give in a point. The text was changed, and the important day for the presentation was drawing nigh the romanticists were of course anxious that the play should be a great success the classics were quite willing that it should be otherwise in fact they had bought up the clack and were making arrangements to hiss it down but the author's friends were numerous they were young and lusty they held meetings behind locked doors and swore terrible oaths that the play should go on the day of the initial performance five hours before the curtain rose they were on hand having taken the best seats in the house they also took the worst wherever a hisser might hide these advocates of liberal art wore coats of green or red or blue costumes like bullfighters trousers and hats to match or not to match anything to defy tradition all during the performance there was an uproar theophile gautier has described the event in a most entertaining style and in la historie des romanticism a record of it is found in detail Several American writers have touched upon this particular theme and all who have seen fit to write of it seem to have stood under umbrellas when god reigned humor. One writer calls it the outburst of a tremendous revolution in literature. He speaks of smoldering flames, the hordes that furiously fought entrenched behind prestige, age, caste, wealth, and tradition, suppression of extermination of heresy, those who sought to stop the onward march of civilization, etc let us be sensible a cane rush is not a revolution and bloody monday at harvard is not a decisive battle in the onward and upward march if hernani had been hissed down victor hugo would have lived just as long and might have written better civilization is not held in place by noisy youths in flaming waistcoats and even if every cabbage had hit its mark and every egg bespattered its target the morning stars would still sing together the hunchback of notre dame was next turned out written in five months and was a great success publishers besieged the author for another story but he preferred poetry it was thirty years before his next novel les miserables appeared but all the time he wrote plays verses essays pamphlets everything that he penned was widely read amid storms of opposition and cries of bravo continually making friends he moved steadily forward men like victor hugo can be killed or they may be banished but they cannot be bought neither can they be intimidated into silence he resigned his pension and boldly expressed himself in his own way he knew history by heart and toyed with it politics was his delight but it is a mistake to call him a statesman he was bold to rashness impulsive impatient and vehement because a man is great is no reason why he should be proclaimed perfect such men as victor hugo need no veneer the truth will answer he would explode a keg of powder to kill a fly he was an agitator but these zealous souls are needed not to govern or to be blindly followed but rather to make other men think for themselves yet to do this in a monarchy is not safe the years passed and the time came for either hugo or royalty to go france was not large enough for both it proved to be hugo a bounty of twenty five thousand francs was offered for his body, dead or alive. Through a woman's devotion he escaped to Brussels. He was driven from there to Jersey, then to Guernsey. It was nineteen years before he returned to Paris, years of banishment but years of glory, exiled by fate that he might do his work. End of section eighteen